that we first heard this music back in 2007, little did we know the wealth of talent Britain was harbouring. From singers, dancers and magicians to comedians, knife throwers and of course the dancing dogs. I'm Genevieve and my guest today was the first ever winner of Britain's Got Talent with an audition that has now been watched more than 250 million times on YouTube. So please welcome to talk about his life after that thing he did. Paul Potts. Paul, good morning. Merry Christmas. How are you? Merry Christmas to you. I'm, I'm well, thank you. What's, uh, what's Christmas usually like in the Potts household and what's your plan for the day itself? Well, often I cook. I don't know exactly what we're doing. Um, still not even yet. Um, I've usually, I usually get game meat because I get bored of turkey. I mean, it's, the trouble is most people overcook it so it's dry and, and coming out in bits. And when I've cooked turkey, I've always cooked it, you know, not too long, barely high temperature, leave it rest for 40 minutes in foil, and then it comes off like like small steaks. But too many people cook it till it's dry. I need to be sure it's cooked. <laughs> oh, that's what a temperature probe's for. <laughs> Christmas dinner is actually like my most favourite meal. If I had to have a last meal, it would be Christmas dinner. My dad makes a mean turkey. I'm sure you and him should have like a, a turkey off or something where you could d debate the uh, the merits of, of how to cook a turkey. Yeah, I'll generally cook venison or if we're doing Christmas at my brother and sister-in-law's, then, um, then I'll usually bring up a, a goose and and some venison because I, I just, because I, I like the dark meat. I like the dark meat on the turkey. I prefer that to the breast. Because if somebody's overcooked it, the dark meat's usually still edible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess that means you're a thigh man and not a breast man. Oh, yes. People can make of that what they will. <laughs> <laughs> you're joining me from your home in Port Talbot today. And I love that you still live there and haven't moved from Wales despite all your success. Um, well, I... It's it's home. I mean, I, my accent isn't Welsh, of course. I'm originally from Bristol, but um, but I, I settled here just before we got married, and well, mainly because property is so much cheaper here. Mm. I mean, it's ridiculous around Bristol. So um, it's about ten times cheaper. Not it's not quite as much that now, but um, but it's where my my in laws live, and Jews wanted to settle close to them, and I, I, did, I didn't I didn't blame them. Let's just say that. <laughs> And of course, Port Talbot was the home to many a star, Anthony Hopkins, Rob Brydon, Michael Sheen moved back there a yeah. few years ago. It's a veritable hub of stardom. Yeah, it's, it's quite a few people from here. I mean, it catches people out sometimes that, you know, there's you know, there's even a politician or two, that Jeffrey Howe. Yeah, it's it's an interesting area. It's, um, and Richard Burton was from up the road in Pontre de Vent, Yes. Which I've only recently learned to say properly. I used to I used to pronounce it the way it was spelt, which used to make Jews laugh her head off because it's spelt completely different to how English people would pronounce it. But, um, That's the beauty of the Welsh language. <laughs> well, absolutely. At least there's no double L's in it. But um, <laughs> double L's I had no problem with. It's the way they pronounce U's and things like that. <laughs> okay, let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone.
rewinding to the beginning, you first wanted to sing after seeing the vicar sing in church and you began singing in church choirs when you were seven years old through to your mid-late teens. And you said in the past that singing in the choir was the only time you truly felt like you belonged and it was the only good thing you had in your life during quite a difficult and traumatic time growing up. Can you explain a bit more about that and what it was about La Boheme that made you fall in love with opera? Um, well, only very few times where I felt like I belonged anywhere, and that was usually in, in choir when I was singing. And to be honest, bullies are lazy sorts. What they'll do, they'll, they'll wait around for you for about 10, 15 minutes, and they think, sob this, I'll get on the bus, and so I'll be out of school an hour later. And physically, it'd get me out of the situation of, of, of going in the same way as the bullies. And I'd often end up in the music room at lunchtime, and um, that kept me out of the playground. I didn't like being in the playground. I always felt on my own there. So... When in the music room, I was surrounded by music, and during choir practice, I was singing. And I, I've always described it as singing as being a place where it's like it's difficult to describe, but it's like a key opening a door into a world where it, it feels like the only place I've ever belonged. And you know, when I first got a huge reaction from an audience, it meant a lot to me. I was I was nineteen, and I, I sang "Love Changes Everything," which I'd only got the score for earlier that day. Um, typical for me. I'm very last minute. And I sang it in its original key, so I ended on the top B flat. And and I had that sensation of an audience buzzing. And it's hard to describe what it is, but it's you, you know that you've reached people when you hear that because you, you could have all kind of... And you hear it ripple through the audience and then they stand up and applaud. And I liked that. I liked that feeling. But at the same time, I, I didn't think it would ever be something I'd do as a career because I knew that if you're going to sing for a living, you need to have training. And I didn't have the money to support myself doing that. And and so I, I figured it would just be a really important hobby. And so what was it about La Boheme that made you fall in love with opera? Well, I always cry in the same in the same places. Puccini was an expert at using certain triggers. Um, and that's the reason why I I always I, I would never listen to Boheme in the key other than the original because he was fastidious about choosing certain keys. And, that, and there's a certain section. I mean, I mean it, the whole opera is just beautiful, but there's a certain section in towards the end, just before Mimi dies, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> <laughs> she turns to him and after she, after he's been given a muff to give to her because her hands are always cold. So he he gives her a muff to put over her hands, which she's been given by Musetta. And and she turns to him and says, you bought this for me, you spend fifth. And, and then there's something, I can't describe what it is, there's something in the orchestra somewhere, in a particular key. And then Mimi says, you're crying? Piangi, and at that moment, I always cry. And and if you're in an audience watching Bohem, you'll hear all the men coughing to try and disguise their cries. At that exact <laughs> moment. Something in my eye. At, at, yeah. at that exact moment, and it's always <laughs> that moment. I mean, but the libretto is just unbelievable. I mean, I, I remember I introduced KJ Lina Menina in, uh, in the Beacon Theatre on Broadway in New York, and... Um, it's one time my name has been on in lights on Broadway, and I didn't have my camera with me and never got a shot of it. <laughs> um, but um, and I and I described um, Ilakanjo Koza as being um, the best chat up line writers ever because if you if you were to choose the words from Kajalida Menina, and I remember translating it when I was in Italy, and there's one particular phrase that really just just sent a shiver down my spine: two thieves, beautiful eyes. 
stole all the treasure from my chest. They entered with you just now, and now all my dreams are second-hand. And, and the way I described that on stage was to say, well, if they walked into a bar and started chatting up the girls, they wouldn't be leaving by themselves. And um, <laughs> initially, the New York Times um, kind of criticised but and then said, actually, he's right. <laughs> so I got a reasonable review from the New York Times, which is something that um, not many people get. Um, but, it's, but it's just something about the music and the libretto is just... I mean, it's just it, the two together are just so moving, and you and 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 I think you have to have a stone heart not to be moved by Bohem. So you continue to sing, but after failing your music O level, you thought it wasn't something you could pursue professionally, and you kind of hinted before you didn't think it was something you could do. Uh, so you did it more as a hobby and studied philosophy and theology at university before spending 10 years working at the supermarket Tesco while also working as a Bristol city councillor. And during this time, you started having some singing lessons, did some short opera courses in Spain and Italy and performed in a few amateur productions. But early on, you were told your teeth would hold you back from being cast as the romantic lead in anything. That must have been really frustrating for you. It, it was. I mean, I, I generally had one of the best voices in the, in the company, and I'd always be understudy. But I knew they'd never ever cast me. And the, the closest I ever got to actually performing on stage was when somebody doing one of the smaller parts. I was understudying. He he worked for Rail Track, and um, his train was late. <laughs> he almost <laughs> never made it. And I'd not I'd not really learned. It was only a small part, and I'd not really learned it. And I, I was I can tell you I was having kittens, um, but thankfully he did arrive. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, it would have been very obvious how underprepared I was for it. Um, being an understudy is kind of a it's kind of an unforgivable task because you get pe- you know professionally they get paid a lot less than the lead, and yet they've got to be able to do it at a moment's notice. Um, and they literally, in, in fact, they've got to know it better than the person doing the role because they've got to just be able to slot into it. So mm. being understudy is, is hard. And um, they, we did once have one rehearsal where, where the understudies did, did the roles. I never got to do the roles that I wanted to do. But basically, because <laughs> my teeth were mangled, but I didn't, have, I didn't have the money to sort them out at the time. So, And because my self-confidence wasn't that great, I just... I just figured it didn't matter, you know, because I saw myself as ugly anyway. So the, the teeth just kind of confirmed the fact. Oh, so it's 2007. You're now working for mobile phone retailer Carphone Warehouse. You've not sung for a few years because you had major surgery to remove a tumour near your liver. And then you got hit by a car while cycling. I mean, how lucky can you be? Sorry, how unlucky can you be? Uh, Which led to a long recovery period. But then you were doing some work one evening on your computer and accidentally maximised an advert for Britain's Got Talent auditions. And you ended up flipping a coin to decide whether you should apply for it. But you really weren't confident of your chances were you you didn't even tell your wife Jules well no she opened the letter um I, I, I'm not, I've always been clumsy I mean I've cut my knee in half once and got knocked over by a, a car who was actually being driven by a doctor I'd broken the bone in my back and still wanted to try and get up super Catholic players to do the role and and I, I remember going on stage in Southgate and and actually they did, I had an open wound and it started bleeding during the stage rehearsal and the and everybody was kind of freaking out. And I said, no, 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 it'd be fine. I'd just change the dressing. And I went back on stage where I did start. And nothing was going to stop me doing the Puccini opera. And then getting knocked down just after I got, after we got married was the thing that really stopped me. Because 
I couldn't afford to do what I was doing because I, I paid, I didn't get any expenses for going up to London. I had to pay for that and and I had to pay for membership. And, you know, because, you know, although, although, you know, you might be a good singer, but you, you know, it's it's amateur. You have to cover your costs. And after being out for more than seven months with the tumour, I, you know, I'd ended up then off for another seven months with a pretty complicated fracture to the collarbone. So, couldn't afford to continue singing at that point because I was having to travel to Bath to do it. Because amazing, there's very few actual opera companies in, in Wales apart from the professional ones. So I had to travel to do it. And financially, I couldn't do it. So when I flipped that coin, I didn't think anything would happen. And the way I figured it was to, you know, that I was too old, I did the wrong kind of music. And, you know, I had such a great face of radio. Why would they choose me? <laughs> and so... Um, I, I just kind of just it was just one of those fifty fifties where you don't think it matters. You're not risking anything, and and because um, I'm not a betting person, and I wouldn't ever bet on anything that mattered, and and so it didn't matter to me at the time because I didn't think anything was going to come of it. And I, I was in work um, as as a manager in the store here in Potaba, and 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 I got a call from from, from Jews, and she said, "Well, what's this?" I said, well, "Don't know what you're talking about." Oh, there's an application to you've been invited to audition. I was given the date for it, and the date they'd given me was a Saturday, and it was a Saturday when when I had somebody on holiday. And there were only three of us in the store, and it was only me and the person on holiday that could open the store. So it's impossible to take a day off in retail if you work on, on a Saturday. Well, yeah, Saturday's <laughs> impossible. But I, and I, I knew from a bit of research that I'd done that they were in Cardiff for four or five days. And so I phoned them up and asked them if they changed the date, explaining that I worked in retail and that I, there was no way I was going to be able to get the day off. And said, so, well, I'm sorry, if you can't make it, then that's it, you can't do it. We can't re- we can't rearrange it. So in the end, um, one of the other people that worked in the store normally that was on holiday, he offered to come off holiday on that day. And I said, no, I know your wife. You've got the holiday holiday to do DIY, and if you don't do DIY, she'll kill you, and then she'll kill me next. <laughs> so, so no, don't don't worry about it. I don't think anything's going to come of it anyway. And a part time, and I had a disabled part timer um, offered. She didn't normally work Saturdays, but she said if she could get a, a babysitter, then then she'd cover for me. And thankfully, she was able to do that. And and, and the daughter that she's um, she needed a babysitter is now married. That's how long ago that was. <laughs> <laughs> so the audition that we saw on TV that's been watched more than two hundred and fifty million times on YouTube now. Was that your first audition or did you have a couple of rounds before that one? Because I know these days it's not really a one and done anymore. Um, there was something in front of producers which I had to sing a cappella and I hated that. And I didn't want to sing a cappella. And when I walked onto the stage, I thought several times about walking away because they we weren't told we couldn't use a backing track, but we were discouraged from doing so. And um, so you don't know how they're going to respond. I did bring backing tracks with me. And then when they came to me and asked me, um, was I okay? I said, well, I'd be much more comfortable if I could use a backing track. And they said, well, do you have it with you? And I said, yeah, here's the CD, track seven. And frankly, <laughs> I was able to do... Here's one I prepared earlier. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah the Blue, Blue Peter line, showing my age again. And um, <laughs> But I think if I'd have had to have done a cappella, I probably would have walked. Um, because, you know, it's, it's really hard to do something like Nelson Dorma a cappella to really get it across its... Um, I mean, I've obviously impressed them enough to, to actually get called back, but not enough for them to move the tape. <laughs> but, um, 
it was a bizarre situation because I was waiting. I was next on after a couple from Bristol who basically their husband, he whistled birdsong while his wife danced with a pashmina scarf. And it was necessarily a little interesting. Um, That's a talent. It's a talent, yes. <laughs> it's a talent. Uh, but it got booed off and I thought, oh my God, what's going to happen? What the hell are you doing here? And I literally didn't know what was going to happen. That's a situation I, I'm not comfortable with. I, I like, no, I mean, I'm disorganized as anything, but when it comes to singing, I need, I, you know, I need to know what's happening. I, I didn't have a proper way of warming up. And that's always a must for me, but I, there was no way of doing it. The only way, the only place I had was a, was a toilet, and that obviously wasn't private. And so you're kind of nervous of warming up properly. And and so, you know, I felt really underprepared. So, you know, I, I kind of wandered on the stage thinking, mm, where's the exit? How can I escape? So, um, you know, I ended up singing and it was, it was, I thought it would be the last time I'd ever perform. So I kind of threw everything into it. And the trouble with doing that is it creates more tension. And with the tension that can affect how you perform. So it's um, it was something that did affect me a bit. The top B that everybody knows cracked a little. So it was, I was kind of disappointed with it, although the reaction was incredible. That's what I find so strange because you got such an amazing response from the audience and, and the judges. And Piers Morgan said at the time, you know, you were going to be the favourite to win this, but you weren't happy with your performance. I guess that's like, the perfectionist in you, isn't it, coming out that, you know, oh, I didn't quite hit that note properly. Yeah, I'm, I'm always like that. I'm still like that now. It's, it can be productive for working on things, but it can be quite destructive as well. I'm really not very good at, I'm really good at giving myself a hard time and I don't quite get certain notes in the right places. So sometimes then I overthink things and the next performance gets affected by that because last time this happened and you're thinking that. And the, the trouble is the more you think in performance, the the worst often you perform because thinking creates tension and and you're not feeling it and that's and that's one of the reasons why I'm and it frustrates my wife that I get ready literally just before I walk on stage because I it gives me less time to think. Mm. I've literally been in a situation on a German TV show once called um, Folks Folks Music and I wa- I walked on and I thought mm, I forgot what the first line was. And it makes me laugh now because um, the first line was the title of the piece. Yeah, I forgot. It. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's and that's and that's the danger of thinking. I've stood on stage with a fifty-piece orchestra behind me doing a twelve-minute um, medley of Mario Lanza songs, and thinking, "What's the first line?" And I, and I had to tell myself to stop thinking because otherwise I wasn't going to find it. And and I stopped thinking, and I was fine. But but that's the danger. It's if you, if you think too much. And then sometimes it it can it can actually hold you back quite a lot. You need to start writing the first lines for your songs on your hands so that you can. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that. I've done that. I've held I've held little pieces of paper. And sometimes I'm just, as I get older, things are a little more difficult to memorize. So I, I, I sometimes have a music stand with a with an iPad on, and the the, the the handy thing with the iPad is it doesn't shine the lights reflected back. You know, when you use one of these folders with the plastic liners, you put the a4 pages in you know they, they reflect the light and sometimes you're squinting at it which makes you look even older <laughs> <laughs> so after your audition was broadcast media interest in you just blew up 
not just here in England, but around the world. And you had a bit of a baptism of fire being thrown into masses of interviews. And just before the final, in typical fashion, where the press start off by building you up and then tear you down, (laughs) um, I remember the press got really mean and turned on you saying that you'd misled everyone and you were actually a professional opera singer. How did that make you feel at the time and how did you handle all that initial press hoopla? Um, well, I was really underprepared for it all. I mean, I, I, I mean I've been a local councillor, but that's not quite the same as having national press weighing for blood, basically, and then spending an hour on the phone with you when they'd been told they'd get 15 minutes. Of course, there was nobody, nobody there on the line to help me with that. I had to just take the call and deal with it. Mm. But I mean, the thing is, the show isn't just for amateurs anyway. I know that's kind of the, the scripted perfection, but you wouldn't have an untrained person throwing knives around. That would be considered dangerous. Um, so, you know, I don't see what the issue is with having training. But I wasn't a professional. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd actually stopped because I couldn't afford to keep performing. But I don't see what the issue is with, with professionals performing anyway. It's... You know, you, it's like I say, you, you wouldn't allow somebody that had never been trained to throw knives to do it unless they had experience. Mm. And so, you know, for some reason, with singers, it's considered different. Um, I mean, I remember in Germany, there was um, there's a magazine called Der Spiegel. And I, I'd done an interview in Berlin, and it was a, it was meant to have been a 20-minute interview, a quick little slot in, in, in the Sunday magazine, and about dreams. And in the end, I ended up talking about Wittgenstein and Descartes and, and, and Kant. And basically, I spent an hour and a half talking about philosophy. And it ended up being the lead the lead part in pressing Die Welt. And, and then their Spiegel came out and said that I'd misled everybody because I wasn't as stupid as they thought I was. Huh. And I thought, well, I'll calculate that a minute. And, I, and they did get criticism for them that I had to deal with in an interview. I said, well, why is it my fault that you made a first judgment about me? Which is fine. Everybody makes, you know, people always make, I take a first impression. You know, that's the reason why our parents told us to dress well. And because, you know, you only get a, one chance to make a first impression. Which is why I was so scruffy all the time. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, people make a judgment about you. It's not. And my, the point I made was that it's not my fault that you made a judgment that was wrong. You made a judgment that I was stupid from the way I, I clumsily and unconfidently walked on the stage. You made the judgment that I wasn't intelligent. I never told anybody that it was thick. Neither did the programme. Nobody was told that I was thick. You drew your own conclusions from what you saw. Mm. Why is it my fault that you made the false judgment? That's not my fault. I didn't tell you I was stupid. I never, I never held any of that back. So let's go back to the night of the final, when you almost went on stage with your flies undone, but it was spotted in time. <laughs> and uh, and again, you felt like you had performed Nessun Dorma badly. So relive what it was like for you in the hour between when voting was happening and the winner was announced, because you, you weren't the favourite to win. It was um, six-year-old Connie Talbot, you know, obviously a cute little mm. child is likely to win these types of things. How tense were you? Um, well, the expectation level was kind of vastly different from from the first audition. Nobody expected anything from that. So, you know, the reaction to that was incredible and, and, and really nice. But once people expect something, the pressure on you increases. So I I, I felt under a lot more pressure um, and it was more difficult. And again, I, I'm, I didn't perform as well as I'd have liked to have done, but you want to always be at your best, but you can't always be at your very best. And... 
I just kind of thought, well, I'd thrown as much as, as I can into it. I'd got an offer from somebody to deal with my teeth, which was good. <laughs> but I had no idea what would happen next. Mm. And that classic moment when they say, and the winner of Britain's Got Talent is... Long pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> that pause before they announced your name must have felt like forever. Yeah, I think it was probably about 30 or 40 seconds, but it felt like an hour. And, and of course, we'd rehearsed this moment because they make you rehearse it all. And I, and I hate rehearsing things that I talk. I, I never rehearse an interview, partly because I might come out with something really, really good. But once I've said it, I've forgotten it. So <laughs> end up being, doing the proper interview, sounding really clumsy because I can't think of what to say. But I rehearsed all of that. And in the rehearsal, I'd, I'd won. And I thought it's never going to happen again. And so I, w- I was still quite shocked when they did read out my name. And with that moment, your life changed forever. So let's move out of the nostalgia zone and into what I like to call the latter zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. Hello, Genevieve here. Just wanted to quickly stop and say if you're a regular listener, thank you for hitting that play button again. And if this is your first time, welcome. You have four whole seasons of nostalgia to catch up on. So if you haven't already, please do follow and subscribe. It's totally free. And if you'd like to support the show, stick around at the end to find out how. Now, back to the latter zone. So the following day, life raced off at a million miles an hour with breakfast TV appearances, more interviews, press conferences. And then you flew off to New York straight away for appearances there. And then a week later, you recorded your first album, One Chance, before shooting off for a promotional tour around the world. And I think in the first six months, you were only home for about four days. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah. Must have been exhausting, but at least you had your wife with you all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wanted to strangle me several times. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think we actually got to. Our, I did a I did a concert with Catherine Jenkins quite soon after BGT, but I, and it was in Margam, so just down the road. But we didn't go home, uh, so we, we I stayed in the hotel in in the town and, and um, then headed back to London um, to record. And um, it was it was quite a whistle stop period. It was. There wasn't really time to, to catch your breath, but you just have to get on with it. I've always had a fairly strong work ethic, so I just kind of work as hard as I can. And you, you're never guaranteed results. That's the thing. You, you you can work really, really hard and then nobody buys anything. Mm. Um, but that's just the way it is. You just have to work as hard as you can. Yeah. And of course, the other part of your prize, winning Britain's Got Talent, was to perform at the Royal Variety Performance, which is a big deal here because you get to perform for the Queen. And I can see behind you on the wall, which people can't see because it's a podcast, but I can see on the wall behind you, you've got a picture of you meeting the Queen there and a letter from Buckingham Palace. So clearly that moment was great for you. But two days before you decided to get new teeth. That was brave, wasn't it? I mean, I got a new crown recently and it felt like I had a rock in my mouth for a week trying to get used to it, let alone wrapping my lips around it, trying to sing in the shower. Well, it was actually a gift from from a dentist, that was. It didn't cost me a penny. It was worth quite a bit, but it didn't cost me a penny. But um, the, the thing with me is I don't numb up very well. I, I was given 17 injections and I could still feel it. Wow. Um, so I just pretended I couldn't and just gripped, tried to grip the chair in, in a certain way that, that wouldn't cause me to tense up where it would cause a problem. And in the past, I've always had difficulties um, numbing up around my mouth. And, you know, you end, you end up with lips that feel so fat, you feel like a caricature. 
And, um, <laughs> and you've got to drink out of a straw because if you try drinking yeah. out of a cup, you dribble down the side of your face. <laughs> yeah, they just you just look like you're drunk already otherwise. <laughs> so I drank G&T for a straw. I couldn't eat anything for about four hours. But it's literally only a couple of days before doing the Royal Variety Show for the first time. And um, I mean, that was, you know, that was, I had cameras around me the whole time, which is quite hard because you you want a bit of time to yourself when you're preparing. And so that that helped with the tension. <laughs> <Not>. <laughs> but um, I, I enjoyed it immensely. It's something that not many people get the opportunity to do. And, um, and I've done it twice. The picture behind me is actually from the second time. Um, so I did it again in the Centenary of the Royal Variety performance in 2012. So I'm, I'm very, very fortunate. I've been able to do it in front of the Queen twice. And um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a very special evening. So when you get the opportunity to do it, you know, it, it is kind of the main prize because it's something you can only be, only be invited to do. And then what do you talk about when you get to meet her at the end? You don't really get that much chance to have a chat because um, I'd never met her before. So it was kind of, it was just literally, thank you very much. And, oh, that was lovely. Thank you. And then, <laughs> and then she moves on. There were a couple of things that surprised me about those first few months after you won. One was that despite winning the £100,000 prize, you still needed an overdraft to get you through the first few weeks because you were struggling for money before the show um, and you were refused by the bank. So have you switched from Barclays now? Yeah, we've switched banks twice since, but um, it wasn't just the fact that they refused the the overdraft, even though they knew what happened. They were rude as well. They were rude to my wife, so I just refused to bank with them again Um, because, you know, Politeness costs nothing and rudeness can cost you all sorts of things. And I just didn't think it was appropriate the way they they dealt with my wife at the time. And they took an age to, to, to actually transfer the bank account to our new one. It took them a long, long time. And because literally, I mean, I'd have to borrow money off my mum the week before because um, I'd run out of money. So um, Barclays are dead to you now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Unless they want to book me for some ads or something. You know, they'll have to pay <laughs> uh, the second thing that surprised me was that um, one chance went straight to number one here in the UK, outselling the rest of the top 10 altogether, was number one in 17 countries. And you were on this promotional tour in Asia, Australia, Europe, America, but you hadn't even resigned from your job at Carphone Warehouse yet. And you didn't until like six months later while on your first concert tour. Did you really think that the success might not last and you'd need a backup plan? Well, you never do know. Um, I've never assumed anything. So um, I literally resigned from from the stage in Atlantic City in, in, in New Jersey. And because I, I just did, I mean, I'd had Carphone Warehouse badgering me to say, you know, what are you going to do? Your career break's ending soon. Are you going to come back? Are you, you know, we don't think you're going to come back, but, you know, you, you, we, need to, we need to replace you. So so I did then resign and then confirmed it in writing to them from America. But I've, I've never taken anything for granted. You just don't know what's around the corner because, you know, things change really quickly in a really good way, but they can they can go either way. But the success did continue, and over the next few years, you released your second and third albums, along with two more world tours, Met Oprah, uh, and then you get told you're going to make, sorry, they're going to make a movie uh, about your life. And One Chance was released in 2013 with James Corden playing you. What's it like watching your life on the big screen? That must be a bit surreal. 
It's very surreal. I mean, people, they, norm they normally wait till you're dead. So I had, to, I had to check my pulse to make sure that I wasn't, <laughs> you know, actually somewhere in purgatory. Um, but no, I was alive and they had made it. And I, mean, I, I loved it. I wanted to be, I wanted it to be something that didn't take itself too seriously. It's very different from the book, mm. um, which I wrote myself. But I wanted it to be something that didn't take itself too seriously. It's It needed to be, you know, something that would make people smile and laugh and... And you know, maybe cry a little, maybe just. Um, but I, I, when I first read the screenplay, I think it was back in 2011, it made me laugh. And that's exactly what I wanted it to do. I didn't want it to take itself too seriously because, and they'd come forward to ask me to write a memoir as well. So I, I felt that it was better for the film to be something that was amusing and funny and moving at the same time. Um, but for the book to take things more seriously. So, yeah, I mean, I noticed that, you know, having read your book and watched the film, I noticed that the, the two are different um, and, and the film is not completely accurate to to your life, um, especially on things like suggesting your dad wasn't the most supportive of your singing when actually he was or depicting you choking in front of Pavarotti when actually you didn't. And in fact, he asked you to sing twice, which is, you know, a massive honour. Those sorts of dramatisations would have niggled me if it was my story, how did you feel about it really though? Is it, is it kind of like, oh, you know, it's not really depicting things true to life. Well, I, I, as well as um, philosophy and theology, I studied film at universities so I understood that when you're doing a sort of 90 minutes, to a two hour film, you've got to keep a timeline and, and you've got to decide what's really important. And, and also, the, the director explained to me why he'd done it. And he said, well, the trouble is, if, it, if we show the masterclass as being really good and going well, then the audience will assume that something should have come from it there. Where in, the, in real life, it doesn't work like that. But in dramatizations, people think, oh, that's happened then, whoosh, that's where you go. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. You can perform really well in front of a, a you know, really important opera singer, but it doesn't necessarily lead anywhere. And it didn't for me. And and so the story arc was completely correct. Um, it was just the way it was told was was changed. Um, but it's but you've got more time in the book. You don't have that time in the film. Um, I, mean, I remember a journalist asking me during an interview, asking me why the film didn't have my sister in it. And I said, "Well, but you've not asked me about my brothers, mm. so you've missed it as well." You know, it's but. The trouble is, if you if you have characters in the movie that, that are in real life, you've got to give them characteristics. You've got to give them something to say. Otherwise, it's even more disrespectful for them to, to them to them to just be sat there as if they're dummies. And and of course, that's thirty minutes that's that a director will decide is not adding anything to the story that they're trying to tell. And and so they have to do stuff with the timeline. So they do have to change things to make it work to squeeze it into that time and and it and, and of course it is Hollywood so they're going to do some of that um but I knew <laughs> yeah. I had the opportunity to tell the story in the book and it always makes me smile ruefully when I see a review on Amazon somebody telling me that the film was better the <laughs> book was a bit oh woe is me I'm, well, <laughs> I, I, I don't think I'd, I don't think I took myself too seriously in the book I did I, I used the same kind of self-deprecating humor that I use uh, of myself all the time, but I had to tell darker stories there. I had to, I, you know, I, I wasn't going to skirt around all the issues that the film would because there was time to cover things. And, mm. and, um, 
you know, so, and, and I was insistent that I would write the book myself. I was offered a ghostwriter, but I said, no, I, if we're going to do the book, I'm going to write it. We'll have an editor. Every, every author has an editor anyway. And I had one person tell me they were going to write me a good story. I said, well, thank you, but no, thank you. I want to write the story. That way I decide what's in and what's out. And I can, I can manage that side of things myself. And rather than have to tell the story to someone else and they write it in their words, it needed to be my voice. And so you went on to release another three albums up until 2018 with more touring. And you've performed well over a thousand concerts now. And it's difficult being on the road a lot for long periods of time, being away from home. And Jules, who you've been married to for almost 20 years now. How have you negotiated your career as a singer with being a husband, deciding whether to start a family or not, and how that all fits into your life? Um, well, the host is tidier when I'm not here, so that makes that makes my <laughs> marriage long, last longer. Because um, I'm I'm not the most organised of people. I'm I am messy, and I will fully admit to that. I've always been messy. I can't help it. I mean, I, I did consider joining the navy at one point, much early in life, but but I don't think I'd have coped with it. Well, I, I might have coped with it, but I don't think I'd have coped with having to be really, really tidy all the time, um, which some of my older brother did. Um, but. Um, I just we've we just always done what what we we've always done and that is you know I I I don't take myself too seriously my wife takes the piss out of me and then I join in <laughs> that's normally how things work um, so we we've, we've got a really good relationship in that you know we, we we just kind of joke with each other and you know we we speak to each other pretty much every day when I'm when I'm away and as when FaceTime is playing ball and. I'm I'm away quite a lot, but I'm also home quite a lot. And then 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 my wife said, "When are you off on tour again? <laughs> You've been home too long. Get out of work." As well as singing, uh, one of the things you've enjoyed doing over your life is photography. First, developing a love for it at school while on a choir tour in Scotland, and you even describe yourself as a singer and photographer on your Instagram page, where you posted some really amazing pictures you've taken from your travels around the world. You've said before that photography's taught you that perspective changes everything. Can you elaborate a bit more on that lesson? Um, I've just always enjoyed taking photographs so for, for, for many years. And I mean, apparently I have too many cameras. <laughs> I haven't got as many as I had. I used to have 16. I've probably got about 10 now because um, I've traded stuff in to buy new and um, and I've trimmed down my... Because my, 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 I, I can only carry a certain amount. But I, I I love being able to just walk and and take and take photographs and and I just sort of see things as they are for a viewfinder sometimes as well as with my own eyes. And there's something about being stood on a hill overlooking a, a wonderful view that's kind of calming. And I've always, it's it's something I've always ended up enjoying. The only trouble is you I spend so long stopping to take photographs. I don't walk as far. <laughs> Because um, it takes a bit longer, especially as the nights draw in. But um, photography's become quite important to me, and and it's it's something that I can just wander out and and do really when when I'm on tour. I mean, I always walk a lot when I'm on tour. I generally lose weight on when I'm on tour, in spite of catering and meals out, because because I will always go for a walk, and I'm always looking to take photographs. Sometimes at two or three in the morning. If I've got something interesting to take photographs of and I, I get to see interesting things. So it's good to be able to capture some of that. 
You've had a long relationship with South Korea, where you're hugely popular, but you've also had a long relationship with Germany, which you kind of alluded to before. Um, and I think at one point it was your biggest market, with you winning the equivalent of a, a German Grammy in 2009 for Best International Male. And you sang at the Brandenburg Gate for New Year in 2010. And earlier this year, you appeared on The Masked Singer there, where you were the koala. How did you find the experience? You said you had a sick bucket backstage. <laughs> Yeah, I was. I'd eaten something from catering that made me feel really ill, and I didn't. I didn't know whether I was going to be sick inside the costume, and I can't. I can't imagine anything worse than than being sick inside the koala's head because I it stunk forever, um, and it, it affected my performance because I just didn't know what was going to happen, and and I was doing something completely out of my comfort zone, which is was the great thing about that show. It's, it's very easy to insist on doing things that work for you, but that's not the point of the show. So sometimes you have to go completely out of your comfort zone. And, and um, so that, on that week, they gave me a pink koala as my girlfriend, in inverted commas. Um, <laughs> it, it, was a, it was a guy in, inside it. And, and <laughs> at, at the end, there was me running and giving him a bear hug. And... What was really interesting was that suddenly I found it, his body was completely limp and I'd almost taken him off the stage completely. He'd been told that they <laughs> that they weren't doing that anymore, but nobody told me. So there's me sprinting <laughs> at him, you know, with all my body weight hitting him. And, um, and, and he wasn't expecting it because he'd been told it wasn't happening, but nobody, they were speaking to me inside the, in, on a headset inside the, the costume, and, but they hadn't told me. <laughs> I didn't get the memo. So he got he got flattened. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I enjoyed it immensely though. It was it was great to look at you know lots of different music. I've never been precious about genre, and, and I never will be. And I, I I tend to take things like this really really seriously. So I I'd actually done about thirty different demos, and I've ended up performing some of them on tour. And um, because I, I'm not precious about um genre it's it's to me it's all music and if it's beautiful then it's worth singing and so i've ended up doing um a house take on me in that style on tour and 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 also a song that i didn't get to do on mass singer the the, the joker and the queen which i've done as a duet in in denmark and and we'll be doing as a solo in my uk tour in february and march because you know music's music you know we can get all precious and think that this is this and that's that is that no it's 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 just music. I say just, it's not just music, but it's, you know, it's simply music and, and music touches people in many different ways. And, and you know, it should be more important it's, than it's given the importance of when, because during, during lockdowns, people valued it immensely. But the entertainment industry was one of the slowest to come out of lockdown. It actually generates more money for the public purse than, than football does, than fisheries does. You know, it's 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 actually one of the biggest imports this country's got. And yet when the chips were down, I'm afraid it didn't get the support from government that it, that it should and could have done. Mm. And and yet it, it you know, the West End, for example, brings in so much money into through taxation and through VAT and you know, all the other stuff that bring in, you know, trade into these surrounding areas. It's, it music's but music's also really important in a non-pecuniary way as well. It touches people in ways that other things will never be able to do. You know, because it, it crosses boundaries. You know, you can not speak the language of something that you're hearing, but it can still touch you. Mm. It's it's something that everybody can participate in. You don't need to be performing to be participating in music. 
you, you feel it and it's something that you take part in. It's not just listening. It's, it's something you take part in. Yeah. You mentioned lockdown there. During lockdown, you performed a daily song for four months and posted it on YouTube, as well as hour-long Sunday concerts outside your house, complete with lovely sunsets, um, which led to your current seventh album, a mammoth 41-song double record, Musica Non Probita. Tell me a bit more about that. Well, I was inspired by what was happening in Northern Italy. In Northern Italy, their, their lockdown was far stricter than what we had. They couldn't leave. So performers would perform on their balconies and with their windows open so that their music could be heard. And lots and lots was forbidden or prohibited. And and But music wasn't. Music found its way. And so I decided that I'd do my own daily performances. And I did it for four months. And I actually lost gigs because um, I wouldn't take them down. Uh, there was a promoter that wanted me to do um, a, a stream gig, but in order for me to do it, they asked me to take down every single video that I'd put up during lockdown. And I said, well, sorry, I can't do that, and I won't do that. So if you won't book me, then so be it. But at the end, I thought, well, you know, perhaps I should record some of them. So I did some demos at home. And then decided last year to actually go into a studio and record them. And I thought that I'd do maybe 12, maybe 16 tracks. In the end, I recorded 41 and it ended up being a double album. And the reason why it's called Musica Non Proibita is because that's Italian for music's not forbidden. Which, of course, is in, in Italy, we saw people standing on their balconies and, yeah. and, you know, while everyone else was locked down, that was the thing that they could do. Yeah, and people found it inspiring. People people found the music and they found that it talked to them. And that's, like I say, that's the reason why music's so important. And, um, you know, it's not just the place where I live, it's who I am. It's That's how people find music a lot of the time, is that, that, that they find it speaks to them in the way that other things can't. And I think we can become a little lazy sometimes with music and listen to just the things that we already know. But it's always good to allow new things to, or things that are new to you, to, to flow past you. So I have no fear in releasing music that people may not have heard before. And, and when I was doing them during lockdown, I'd always introduce them. If there was an aria, I'd explain the background to it and, um, and, and, and gave translations to them as well, because, you know, that way people were able to understand them better. But it's, um, it's, there's no, there should be no barrier to any kind of music for anyone. It's, you can listen to what you want. Nobody owns music. Everybody owns music. Hmm. You've just finished a Danish tour and you mentioned a bit before that you will be touring here in Britain in the new year. How do you look after your voice? Because frequently you see singers whose voice gets fried from performing too much and they have to cancel or postpone tours midway through. What do you do? I'm going to touch wood because in in 1100 shows I've never I've I've been ill at times but I've got through and I I've never actually cancelled the show in 15 years and and I look back and see how much insurance I've paid out in that time <laughs> and uh, think mm, well but if I if I'd not taken out the insurance then all sorts of things would have gone wrong because it's sod's law like that. Um, I, mean, I just I just try and listen to my voice really. I take plenty of immunity boosting vitamins and they eat plenty of garlic, especially in, in Korea. 
Um, Does that work? Apparently, it scares the cold away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they can't stand the smell and they run away. Uh, All right, sorry, I thought you, for, for the colds, I thought you meant you were eating garlic because that helps your voice. <laughs> well, well, garlic garlic's actually good for your heart and it's it's good for your immune system as well. So I don't get as many colds. I do get some and I'm always scared when I get a cold because a lot of them head to my chest and they end up on my chest and I cough a lot and then you can end up with things like laryngitis and, and bronchitis and that that can be bad news for your voice. And I've I've had situations where I've had to try and have, kind of try and get through a show rather than really enjoy it because, you know, I've, I've got a show to do and people have, have sat there after being sat outside in minus 15. Um, and the closest I ever got to cancelling a show, did, it was in Luxembourg and um, the the audience, they they. they Rock Hall in, in Luxembourg were really slow in opening the doors and they've been waiting outside in minus 20. Wow. And so I couldn't I couldn't cancel even though I felt that I should because, you know, they, they'd just been left out in the cold. And leave them out in the cold for that long and then say, sorry, I'm not doing the show would have been, you know, that wouldn't have been good. I didn't get great reviews from that night because you can't turn around and say, I'm going to do the best I can, but I'm ill. You, you can't say that to a paying audience. It's just You just have to do the best you can with what you have. But I've, you know, but I've done over 1,100 shows and I've, I, the vast, vast majority of them I've been reasonably happy with. And that's me being really strict with myself. <laughs> uh, but um, I, I, and I love what I do and it's, and it's great to take music out on the road and, and explore places, often places I've not been to before, but also some places that I've been to before but haven't seen things in. So I always, I always take time to walk around. Your career is 15 years strong now. And you said that Britain's Got Talent saved you from yourself because you were no longer defined by the difficult times before that and the low self-esteem and confidence you had where you didn't feel you deserved any better. Do you feel like you deserve your success now? Um, I don't think I'll ever be somebody that's supremely confident. And I, and I kind of prefer it that way. I'd rather, I'd rather have not quite enough confidence than too much. Um, I've been told before that... Arrogance is is something that's important if you're a singer, if you're going to make it. And I'm thinking, well, nonsense. That's BS. And you know, it's you, you have to be you. And you know, you, you can't be successful as being you if you're being someone else. So I've I've always been resolutely stubborn. I'm stubborn anyway. Ask my wife; she'll definitely tell you that. <laughs> um, I've I've always been resolutely stubborn to be who I am. And you know, it's. I've, I've always been had that determination to be that I, I can't be successful at being someone else. That's acting, and 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 that and that's the trouble sometimes with certain reality TV shows is that is that people end up having to keep up this pretense of what they were inside that bubble that they were in, and 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 I think it's really harmful to people's mental health when they're having to put up this pretense. And and, and I remember being on the top deck of. Um, of a British Airways 747 jet coming back from LA. And I'd got up, and I know how clumsy I am. I mean, I've said before I'm clumsy, but I know I, I know how clumsy I am. And I'm thinking, well, I'm going to watch a film and go to sleep. I mean, very fortunate I'm in, I'm in the flatbed in business class. And so I think when I finished eating, I've got these China cups and saucers and that and crockery, and I'm going to take this with me because I need to go to the loo anyway. I'll take the tray to the galley and give it to the cabin crew do what I need to do and then go to sleep. Because I know that if I leave it there, I'm going to knock it flying and wake up the whole cabin, which would make me really unpopular. But feedback got to the label that I was with at the time. And, and I got criticised for doing that because it made me stand out. And I've got to I've got to remember that who I am and what I am and, and not stand out 
And I think, well, I just did what I would do. Why should I think about every single thing I do and 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 always be thinking how will that make me look? If I if I spend my whole life thinking about how something will make me look, I think I go crazy. So in the end, you just have to do what you would do. And if people judge you wrong, it's not my problem, it's theirs. Mm. And you know, so sometimes you've got to take that chance. And you know, I I I thought it was a considerate thing to do. Well, I thought it was the right thing to do, so I did it. And it made sense to me to do it that way. And and they said, well, what you should do them is press the call bell and they'd come down and say, yeah, but you feel how much the floor vibrates when somebody's walking down it. And then you've got to hand it over without knocking it flying. And that's not one of my strong points either. <laughs> but it, it just made sense to me just to take it with me. But, you know, I, 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 you can't spend your whole life looking over your shoulder and thinking, how will that make me look? And it's strange that something so innocuous as just bringing your tray of food back would be construed as like oh well i can't well, believe well, he did that well it, well the, the the feedback i got was that he was suggesting that they weren't doing their job which wasn't the point i was making i just i just it just struck me as a as a normal thing to do to get up and take it with yourself because you're going that way anyway you know why go through the hustle of pressing the bell and waiting for them to come down and then hand it over and then just following them back that's that's crazy that's just there's no common sense in that, so that's the reason why I didn't do that. And and I, in the end, I just nodded politely, and and on another flight, I did exactly the same thing, but didn't get the same feedback. <laughs> but you know, it's it, you know, it's it's like sometimes you find people treat you differently, and in, 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 you know, in a in, sometimes in a really rude way. I've had I've had I, you know, I've had people literally tell me that they know who I am, and then then be really rude to me, and you know, and I've just got to kind of try not to rise to it, you know, but everybody has the same right to be treated the same. And that's with respect and politeness. And that's what I try and give to people. And that's what I kind of expect from people that, are, you know, that are dealing with you. I don't expect any special treatment of any kind. I'm, I'm just another bloke. Last question. Are you still skimming stones? And what's the secret to good skimming? <laughs> um, you have to have calm water. Um, which the moment is in short supply with the wind. Um, it's all about the shape of the stone. I've never been able to do it. It took me a while, um, but it's it's if they're too big, you, you'll struggle. It's there's there's kind of a about sort of twenty centimeters sort of semicircular. It's being well warmed by the by the sea, and, and it's, then it's all about the angle and the speed, and then you can get plenty of skims. But um, sometimes it will catch the wave wrong. I and mean, I just kind of something that some they used to do when when we were on holiday in, in Portsmouth because pebble beaches and what can you do on the pebble beach? You can't you can't build sandcastles. <laughs> <laughs> when was the last time you uh, you skim stones? Is it something that you just kind of grow out of? But now I've uh, reminded you, you're going to be thinking, right? I'm going to try this now. <laughs> I'm going to get back to skimming stones. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's been a while, but not that long. Not that long. If I'm on the beach, it's got stones. I, I sometimes do it. Um, it's when somebody, when you're trying to take a long exposure photograph and somebody's trying to um, trying to skim stones across you, it can be a ruin in my water. <laughs> I'm trying to do a nice reflection and suddenly it's ruined. <laughs> then somebody throws a stick and the dog goes in. Ah, oh, well, I'll pack up, I'll go. <laughs> Paul, it's been so lovely chatting with you. Simon Cowell says that you're one of the warmest, friendliest guys he's ever had the pleasure of working with and I can totally see why he'd say that. Thanks so much for your time. Best of luck with the album and talk and Merry Christmas. Thank you. Same to you.
Many thanks again to Paul for joining me. As we mentioned, Paul's new album, Musica Non Probita, is out now. Apologies for my Italian pronunciation. And you can catch him on his UK tour in February and March. Find out more details on his website, paulpottsofficial.com. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Celebrity Catch-Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support it, please visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate. And as ever, do please tell a friend or share it on social media so others can discover and listen too. Hit that subscribe or follow button, leave a nice review because people are more likely to listen if someone else says it's worth it. And do say hello and follow me on social media. Just search for Celebrity Catchup and you'll find me. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.